It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Podcast. My name is Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Sean Hogan. Hello, Sean. Hello. Now, we've come to talk about... A, oh, you're a writer-director. We've had you on the podcast before. Um, and you've now written a book about a, a British horror film... Yep. ...called Deathline. Do you, and, that's part, that was, uh, and that's out now? It is out now, yeah. We did the launch uh, a couple of months ago. So it's it's available now online... From the publisher, PS Publishing, or I think on Amazon. Um, so yeah, and it's limited to five hundred copies on the first edition. Is that right? Yeah, the the hardback edition is limited to five hundred. I think there may be an ebook after that, but um, but yeah, I mean they do a lot of their business in sort of limited edition books. So, okay, yeah. and this is part of the Midnight Movie Monograph. Yes, series. Do you want to tell us what that is, so people can get a sense of yeah. Where, so where uh, so the series is edited by a guy called Neil Snowden. Uh, And essentially, I guess what it is, is if you know the BFI monographs, which are those little kind of pocket-sized books where they talk about one film, Mm -hmm. this is like the genre version of that. So this is like, we're going to take a bunch of horror movies and we're going to write a whole little book about them, a little pocket-sized book. Here, here to that initiative. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, You know, they're all like 20 to 30,000 words long. uh, And Neil's brief was very much kind of that he wanted it to be more like the 33 and a third books where uh-huh. you can kind of take interesting approaches to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, I kind of took him at his word and <laughs> didn't yeah. exactly write a conventional book, but there you go. <laughs> and everyone told me I was mad, but it seemed to turn out okay in the end. Well, I've got to say, because the, book, the book's in three distinct parts. Yes. Yeah. So I'll, I'll do it in the order I read it. <laughs> for the benefit of the audience. <laughs> I did read it as about tip, but... Um, but yeah, so in... in the the part two of it is is you talking about the film specifically. Part it's, three. It's an essay on yeah the film. It's an essay about yeah. the film. Yeah. Uh, Deathline, and there is a part three, which is an interview with the filmmaker about the making of. Yeah. But part one, do you want to explain what part one is? All right. So for anyone who hasn't seen Deathline, um, I mean, essentially, it's the, boiling it down to its very basic level. It's about a cannibal on the tube. It's about this guy. Uh, who kind of sneaks up out into the tube and like kidnaps people and eats them. That's a very basic level. That's kind of the film's about a lot more than that, but that's essentially what the film's about. In the course of the film, um, because people start disappearing, the, you, uh, this police inspector gets dragged into the plot, who is played by Donald Pleasance. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think it's probably Donald Pleasance's best ever role. He's amazing in the film. Um, and... I mean, we can sort of talk about how this works yeah, yeah. as we as we talk more about the book. 
Um, but he essentially kind of runs away with the film because his character in the grand scheme of things shouldn't be that important in terms of what he does in the film. Mm -hmm. But he kind of runs away with it because his performance is so great and the character's so sort of funny and eccentric that he sort of just overpowers everything. And so when it came to writing about the film, I realised that one of the things I was most fascinated with was that character. And so what I ended up doing was, rather than just writing a basic kind of making of, I ended up writing the diary of Pleasance's Inspector character. Oh. Which, it was kind of another way of looking at the film. I sort of looked at it from the inside out. Um, and it was just sort of, you know, I was, I'm coming at it as a, as a screenwriter, so I'm used to writing characters, mm -hmm. and I found that character so delicious, I just kind of wanted to live with him for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but in doing so, what I then did was sort of tr try to sort of expand the parameters of the film, and to take some of the kind of themes of the film, which is very kind of political, it's very sort of left-wing, it's kind of looking at the underclass and the overclass, and I tried to take some of those themes and expand on them and actually take them in new places. So it mm. kind of takes the inspector outside the boundaries of the film yeah. and develops his story. Yeah. And so it kind of builds upon the film, but hopefully in a way that sort of pays homage to what the film is about. But you literally write it as in... Yes, as in, I wrote it in character. It's like us yeah. listening to yes. Inspector Hopefully, Calhoun. yeah. If I no, no, it's very, much so. very much so. Very much so. It's a, it's a very... I've... I've, I've I've interviewed Steve Delaney once as Count Arthur in character, which is very unnerving. But at least I could tell that there's two people. But you're, <laughs> yeah, I'm not Calhoun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank God. And so, and that was in, and, and uh, from 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 your essay within the book, that was inspired by a book that somebody wrote where they they kind of joined the dots yeah, between noir characters what's that book yeah called? suspects by yeah. david thompson uh he t I, I lose count of how many characters he deals with in it but basically it's uh he takes sort of 50 or so film noir characters and tells their stories but then again sort of develops their stories with beyond the boundaries of the films that they're in and begins to interconnect them so you end up with this whole tapestry of film noir. Was it characters. Travis Bickle and? Um... Oh, the ones I mentioned. Yeah, he, he ends up with Travis Bickle and um, the Gene Hackman character from Night Moves. They're, they're, they end up being brothers and stuff like that. Genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's great. It's a fantastic book, and I'd always wanted to sort of do a horror version of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which Neil actually said to me, if you want to do that, I will publish it. So, you know, you never well, know. It could still happen. But this is kind of my like my microcosmic way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because it does that to a certain extent. Mm. There's a little, in, in Cahoon's diary, there are certain other people that wander in from other films, from other English films of the period. Okay. Um, I we should say, really, that if people don't know, this is a 1972 film. Yes. And I guess at that point, Pleasance was probably most famous for being Blofeld. Yeah, he hadn't done. I mean, for someone now who's kind of ubiquitous as a sort of genre film yeah, star, a, yeah. he hadn't done that much genre. Mm. He'd only done a couple of things, uh, and he was much more of a kind of respected actor mm. type. You know, he'd done Blofeld. That was obviously his big mainstream thing. But you know, he was famous for working with Pinter. He'd done The Caretaker. You know, he'd been in Cold Assault with Polanski. He mm. was sort of quite a respected actor's actor. Yeah. Um, so it was like a big deal for him to do Deathline. I mean, you know, Gary Sherman said to me, he was sort of like, you know, we couldn't believe that we got Donald Pleasance. It was yeah. so, you know, uh, so overall to be working with him because he was not someone who did this kind of film. And it's, 
And being 72 is quite important, I think, because the 60s are over, and in that sense, the hippie dream's over, and the hippie dream's literally over in the director. Yeah. Who, who, have, who through his own fortune, had an English mother, I think, in the interview he, said, he talks about, and fled America as it was eating itself through its civil rights movements and disruption. And yeah. he, he references particularly the... The, the Democratic, Democratic Convention, yeah, convention yeah, in yeah. Chicago, yeah. which was 68, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. So, an ultimate was 69, which is definitely the end of the hippie dream as, yeah. far as, yeah. as far as whatever the Conservatives were going to do to eat the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, and we had, and, and it's great because you, you've, you've, it's not something I thought about the film having first watched. And I should add, Sean recommended this film to me the first time I interviewed him on the podcast. Um, Previously, you interviewed me. Let's go, Jessica Death, in an interview I'd done for Quietus. But this one, we were talking British films, and, you, and I'd never heard of it. And so, first time I watched it, I just watched it as a straight horror film, and was like, I was kind of irked that it wasn't like any other British horror film I've seen. <laughs> and you've thankfully now written a book that explains why it irked, and I mean in a good way as well, yeah. not in a bad way at all. Uh, it was, um, it, it, it was like. It's made in the middle of what would have been, I guess, the, the height of Hammer and Amicus. Would, would, well, it's probably the sort of death throes of Hammer at that point. Hammer and we were kind of on their way out. Well, um, culturally, they were British. But they were still, but... yeah. I mean, you still, it was still kind of Hammer Amicus, pretty much. That was the mainstream. That was what was horror was considered to be. There was no political country. subtext or, no, or commentary. Not on much. No, you could no, probably no, find no, it no. in some of them, but some of them, but... like I say, like I might, I might mention in the book. I'm mean, like Michael Reeves probably would have yeah. been that. Yeah. But he was already dead by this point, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, no, this was not this was not an English thing at all. I mean, horror was sort of fairly quaint. And I guess because he's American, and he and, and he, talk, he he references the fact that Britain refers oh what all that racism you've got in America, and he comes to Britain and he just sees classism, sexism, oh, yeah. jingoism. It's a bit like 2017, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Frighteningly. Yeah. It was like... Yeah. Gary, fr- come back and make another film. Jesus. You know, I'm reading the 1968 <laughs> you know, you're thinking that gave us bloody, uh, what's he called, that Nixon. Yeah. You know, we've got we've got all the world turned on its head. We've got Vietnam and now we've got, we've got Trump and we've got Brexit and it feels like yeah. the world has moved on but not but stayed the same in some sense. Yeah, we need to go back to making these kind of films. So yeah, so the, what was all the state, well, it's a long way of me saying that out of that is this American new wave of horror where we've got uh, Night of the Living Dead, and we've got Last House on the Left, which were not like anything, not like much else that had gone before. And you align Deathline yeah, with I, those movies. I, I see Deathline as coming very much out of that tradition because it's not, it's made by an American. I don't even think he was particularly aware of what was, you know, he said to me he'd heard of Night of the Living Dead, but he had, still hadn't seen it at that point. I don't think he was aware of, of Last House on the Left. So, but it was just kind of a zeitgeisty thing where you had, in America, you had all these people making these sort of grindhouse exploitation movies, but they were putting a political sensibility into mm. them because no one really cared as long as they were sort of ticking the boxes in terms of, you know, these have got gore or sex or whatever else in. Mm. And Gary Sherman did exactly the same thing, but he did it in England. Uh, and it was unlike anything else being done here. And so I think it kind of, you can put it as part of that tradition, that American new wave. And I think the reason it didn't get a fair shake for so many years is because, but we weren't doing that at that point. Mm. We were still making these sort of quaint little gothic melodramas. Yeah. And someone came along and made a very hard hitting, gritty, class conscious left wing horror movie. And everyone went, what is this? And, yeah. and it was just kind of dismissed and forgotten about for years. You know, and I think now you look back and you could put it in context. And and like you say, central central to the to this story is this very untypical 
central character who isn't necessarily the hero of the story, mm -hmm. but you can't take your eyes off him, which is Pleasance as Inspector Calhoun. And he's not even an anti-hero, is he? Because I think in 2017, a alcoholic, cantankerous, slightly racist detective would be nailed on as the, an anti-hero. Oh, yeah. You know, in this one, in this one, he's a British eccentric. He's a comic relief, yeah. He's a, he's a British eccentric comic relief. In a, in a, and it's almost like anti-police procedure as well, isn't it? It's not trying to be... He doesn't do anything. I mean, this is... It's, I talk about this more in the book, but given that he has the most screen time mm. out of all the characters in the film, but he doesn't actually do anything. If you look at the film's plot, he does nothing that affects the plot in any way whatsoever. So you could literally take Pleasance out, out of that film mm. and the film wouldn't be any different in terms of how the story unfolds because he doesn't do anything. Yeah. And like giving a character that much screen time who actually doesn't achieve anything is kind of radical because it's you know that's would be a screenwriting no-no. It's sort of like well this character not doesn't doesn't achieve anything, he doesn't want anything. Um he's just kind of there mouthing off. Yeah, thematically, him and his sergeant basically represent the straddling between the rest of us, i.e. working yeah. classes, and the establishment. Without, i.e. Yeah. they're still fingered as the establishment because they're coppers. Yeah, but they're clearly working class because yeah. they've got access. Yeah. yeah, but they are. They kind of they are. They represent the uselessness of the establishment. Yeah, I suppose. That's but right, yeah. but they represent it to such an extent that they kind of take up half the film. Yeah, you know, it's. I mean, I think. Um, it may, we mentioned it in the book. I think you know, sort of. You can look at um, American Werewolf in London, mm. and I think you can kind of draw a dotted line between some of the stuff in American Werewolf and in Death Line. Mm -hmm. And like Gary Sherman said to me, that John Landis was very consciously doing that. Mm. That he's a fan of the film and everything. But when you have the two useless English cops in American Werewolf in London, mm. who are kind of you know, you can sort of draw a line between them and Pleasance and his partner in Death Line. Yeah. But they're in a few scenes and they're useless and they don't do anything but they're only in a handful of scenes but whereas this is like Pleasance is in half the movie but he's a, he's, he's but also the the main antagonist which is the man the man it, yes who's living underground within the, the the forgotten tube tube tunnels um is equally we're seeing what he's doing yeah but he's not he's not doing anything to destroy the world He's getting on with his life. So he's trying we get, to survive. Yeah. We, we're yeah. seeing him survive. Yeah. So his interactions with the world are getting more and more visible. Yeah. As opposed to he's attacking the world and the world needs to be saved from the man. It's a, we, we, We're just invited to look at him as a person, which I think he's like, we're invited to look at... The reason I'm saying that is because is I feel like we're invited to look at Donald Pleasance as a police character. And then both of them are equally interesting because like, mm -hmm. what the fuck's a survivor doing in the tunnels? And what's yeah. this policeman not doing anything but fanning about? Whereas in the middle of that, you've got this American student yep. who is um, who, who's, who's with his English girlfriend, and they're the people that are alerting the world to what's going on because they seem they get they a are the first witnesses, I suppose, yep. to what becomes the, the mystery yep. to the rest of the world. But then they become actively involved in mm -hmm. the horror that becomes the finale. Yeah, and in a normal film, he'd be the hero. Yeah, but he's not heroic. In this, he's not know. as good an actor as Donald Pleasance. Well, he's he? certainly not that. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think to Gary Sherman's credit, I, uh, you know, it seems very much as though that might have been an act, uh, an act, a choice of actors that was imposed upon him because mm. he's the the brother of one of the executive producers. So it's sort of Fair like enough. you got to use my brother in this part. 
Um, to Gary Sherman's credit, he kind of ran with that and was sort of like, okay, this guy's a bit of a cold fish. He's not the greatest actor in the world. Therefore, we're going to make the character a bit of a dick mm. so that you, we don't have to sympathise with him. He doesn't have to be the most interesting person. And he is it's sort of like, again, you know, in any normal film, he'd be the hero. But in this one, you're like, what a dick. You know, he's like, treats his girlfriend really badly. He doesn't want us get involved. Yeah. You know, he's kind of the archetypal, you know, um, brutish American who's just sort of like, oh, you step over these people in New York every day. You don't stop and try and help them. You know, um, he's just kind of the hero by accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and he's so he's he's much less sympathetic than the, the, the so-called villain, who is genuinely a tragic figure. Well, it's actually, now you describe, when you describe him like that, that probably answers a question they had uh, for later, which is, it was interesting in the interview with, with German that he, he didn't pull any punches. He didn't pull any punches in terms of his criticism of his characters in the terms of who they were, not not how they performed. Mm -hmm. So in particular, that student, he... He's referencing back to his own experience of people he met at university who would appear to be politically sound, and by, by that I mean left-wing, yep. but really they were probably apolitical, borderline conservative, fitting in with probably the general... Probably went on to be yuppies in the 80s. Yeah, 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 yeah went yeah, on to yeah. sort of be Bill Gates or whatever. Yep. Um, and and he was, comp with that character, he was, he was enabling his... his, 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 his his anger towards those people to come to the fore. Yeah, because because obviously, I mean, you know, Pleasance kind of picks on the character as you know, long-haired student and all this kind of thing. And, Get your and, hair cut. Yeah, <laughs> uh, um, and I said this to to Gary Sherman. I was sort of like, you know, on the face of it, he he should be the character you sympathise because he's the sort of student radical. And, mm. and, and Gary Sherman was like, yeah, but he's not really. He's just one of these guys that played at being that. Mm. Um, but. You know, it's sort of like take off the hippie wig and everything, and in, inside you've got like a banker or whatever. And this is and this is the great thing about the film. If anyone's not seen it, is that it's it's laid with these observations mm -hmm. where it's like go back to the point that it's it's after the sixties, so we're not seeing swing in London. Are we? No, 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 we're definitely not seeing swing. We're definitely in London. seeing not hyphen swing in London. It's like it's it's, <laughs> it's the, gritty, grimy, horrible London. Yeah, yeah and it's yeah. around Russell Square Tube. So anybody yep. that knows the area now. That's a fairly salubrious part of town. Yep, yeah, but it um, wasn't then, you know. Not at all. Yeah, it was all shot off Euston Road and, you know, and, and, kind of and, area. And, he's, and he's a t he's, his non-too-subtle attacks on our establishment <laughs> are, do are done right from the get-go, aren't yep, they? With, yep. with our, our OBE OB yes. carrying uh, Lord or whatever. Pervert, yes. Yeah, per <laughs> pervert. Which is, and, and, and the record's there, I mean, at the time, what, what year was Get Carter? Was that 73? 72, 72. So, so yeah. it's around the same time. Yeah. And it has its opening scene with all the, the great and the good watching yeah. paedophile films. Yeah, yeah. You know, so clearly there was rumblings yeah. as to dissatisfaction with the establishment. You couldn't go on writing the newspaper because they were the yeah. establishment. Yeah. And film is a fairly good vehicle for poking a stick at these yeah. people. Oh, yeah. yeah. Without a lot of them even bloody noticing, I imagine. Cause I'm sure, not... yeah. I mean, who would be watching these kind of films? You know? Yeah. And, 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 and it's, it, it pays off brilliantly the way he opens the film, where it's like, he's not dead. <laughs> There's no crime. Shut the case. We don't any fuss. Yeah. Because it's not about he's solving the murder. Yeah. It's about what will we find about yes. our dead man. What will the will... police find out about yeah. our dead man? Yeah, That'll yeah, embarrass yeah. the nation. Yeah. Hence you get the MI5 scene with Christopher Lee coming in and saying, sweep all this under the carpet. Yeah. But it, but it brilliantly paid off in... Uh, and. and now, you mentioned Christopher Lee, which is a, a good segue, because I thought that was a good story about how 
the role that he plays. What's the the, the hyphenated name? Uh, Stratton Villiers. Yeah, Stratton Villiers. It's a. It's like it's like it, when you watch it without knowing this, it's kind of he drops into the film. Yeah. Again, I guess playing along with Pleasance getting all the screen time, and and you, and and it not leading to any resolution to do what Pleasance does. But nevertheless, and, and um, Chris Villiers embodies who's in charge of the world. Yeah. Pleasance's character resents him yeah. completely. At least has complete contempt for him, and um, the way that role was cast was just simply. If it hasn't got fangs, he'd, he'd love to do it. Yeah, he basically because <laughs> again because they had Pleasance, mm. who who was this you know esteemed actor, Christopher Lee was sort of like I would love to be in a film with Donald Pleasance, and the producer was sort of like, well, we can't afford you. Hmm. And he was like, "It doesn't matter as long as you can put me in a scene with Pleasance." Our budget is your day rate. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> and um, he was like, "As long as you put me in a scene with Pleasance and I don't have to wear fangs, I'll do it. It's fine." So yeah. they basically wrote this scene for him and Pleasance to do, which is just basically them squaring up against each other. Which it's you... great, but it has kind of very little to do with the rest of the film. Um, but in again, in an interesting way, and it's like something that I, that's something else that I run with in the diary hmm. of like what the implications of that scene are and what, uh, okay. what their history is and stuff like that. Oh, because so they'd obviously met before in the scene. It refers to them knowing yeah, each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, so yeah. I sort of drew on that and ran with that because I kind of think that was an unexplored little nugget as yeah, to yeah, what these yeah. two characters' relationship actually is. So, but it, but it, but it's interesting that that the, the, the casting of um, of Pleasance led to the interest of Lee. And that obviously being too good opportunity to miss. So they literally write that scene. It didn't exist mm. before. It wasn't like they had a scene with a missing. No, I don't think so. No, no, no. So, but then they wrote the screenplay, a horror screenplay that is, with a comedic character knowing, in a hedge in your bets way, that they wanted Pleasance to play this role. And that Pleasance was up for playing a comedy role. Apparently so, yeah. I mean, he's, he, uh, uh, Gary Sherman said to me that, that Pleasance was really only interested in the comedy. Yeah. The kind of horror stuff he was like, that's all fine, but that's mm. not why I'm doing this film. I'm doing this film because I want to be funny. And he is brilliantly funny, mm. you know. Um, it's just a very eccentric mix against the rest of the film. It was sort of like he just kind of ran away with that mm. section of the film and made it into his own. Which is what I think, you know, is one of the things that makes it such an interesting film. But. Now, and, and you, 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 you've sort of looked at the timeline and stuff, and the character of Calhoun predates John Thor's similarly cantankerous. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Character yeah. of Sweeney. Yeah. So there's there's an argument that would. Are you suggesting that maybe the writers as the Sweeney of? of, of sort I don't know. I mean. <sighs> You know, it's interesting to kind of draw these lines. You know, who knows? I, it, I mean, Deathline when it came out, I think it sort of it did reasonably well at the box office, but was kind of critically derided in the mainstream press. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, I, you know, I don't think it was widely seen for a long time. It's still a film that people are catching up on now. You know, it's mm. they've just released the remastered Blu-ray of it in the US. Okay. I'm, you know, and I'm seeing a lot of people, certainly in the US, seeing it for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly in its like proper form, because it was released in the US under a different title, but you know had a lot of stuff cut out of it and all this kind of thing. So it was like a terrible version that was seen in the US. And I just think it was one of those films that wasn't necessarily particularly widely seen. So I can't really comment as to who saw it and who may have been influenced by it. But it's kind of interesting. It's a good spot, though. Yeah. It's a good spot. They, I, if, if they didn't draw the line, you, you're, 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 quite, you're quite valid in your, your, your attempt to draw, draw the dotted line from Calhoun to John Thorpe. Well, you know, like I said, I mean, I try and draw the dotted line from Calhoun back to him doing Harold Pinter and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, true. And I, you know, that's... Not something Gary Sherman would admit to, uh, but 
it may have influenced Pleasance. It feels to me like it influences Pleasance. I'm interested. I was interested to see. I mean, given you you you, you sort of finger it as being more in common with the American New Wave, it was interesting you fingering its influence on, say, Texas Chainsaw, Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. I mean, Sherman agrees, doesn't he, that that's... I think he he thinks very much so, that, yes, that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was slightly derived from it, yes. But then he's in, he's been influenced by Sawney, the legend of Sawney, hasn't he? Which is a, yes, which yeah, is a yeah, yeah. influence on, on, yeah. on Texas Chainsaw as well, isn't it, I think? Well, it's true, but I mean, you know, as who can who can say? I mean, it, whether whether it's them both being influenced by Sony or Texas Chainsaw Massacre being influenced by Sony by way of Deathline, mm. I mean, you know, I don't know. Now, one of the you said there's a different. I mean, it was called what was it retitled Raw Meat in America? Yes. Yeah. Now, one of the one of the one of the criminal things that happened to the film when it went to America was there's a there's a wonderful twelve minutes. Of, is it twelve minutes in total? I don't think it's quite twelve minutes. I think it's, it's like about six. It's minutes. about no, it's longer than that. I think it's maybe about nine. Okay, so let's let's call it nine then. Yeah. Of a, of, a, <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a tracking shot, which basically allows us to study the man's lair. Yeah. And then literally does below up ground, which which is a wonderful shot, and, and obviously for the time with the technology available yep. and the budget, yep. was a fairly daring move given he was doing what one seven day week and two six day weeks to shoot it yeah 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 no it's incredibly ballsy and uh i just it's it leaps out at you when you see the film i think i remember for the first time watching it and that shot coming on and you suddenly go this is something different mm. this is, you don't see this in horror movies every day it's it's just really like kind of remarkable for the sort of period it was made in and the and the amount that it cost and all this kind of thing. It just really says this film is not like mm. these other films that you've been watching before. But it's a very it's a very cinematic choice, isn't yeah, it? Yeah to, yeah. to do that. Yeah. Because there's no drama there's no drama other than what's in your head. Yeah. Because you're being asked to look at stuff, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's you're being asked to look at some pretty grisly stuff. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. you know uh but yeah as you, it kind of tells you the entire backstory of the film in this one mm. shot mm. you know it tells you everything you need to know about how this guy got here and you know what happened in the mm. past and all this kind of thing it's great you know and it, to, but the, but like like all books that look into stuff there's always that like kind of pulling back the curtain and going there's the wizard of oz <laughs> now i mean in, in much the same way I, I read about something about kurosawa about a shot where it was like perfectly symmetry and it was these horses coming towards you and he was like why did you choose that shot and he went there was an airport on the left and a car factory <laughs> on the right and they couldn't be in shot and that was and then it's kind yeah. of like all oh, right there's your, there's your choice of shot not quite as not quite as cheesy as that but but sherman talks about the fact that he tried this technique and was had was was known for it almost he said he liked doing stuff in in long takes yeah yeah and for for, for lenore conditioner you, you yes yeah, something like that. Yeah. You, could, yeah. you couldn't you couldn't culturally you couldn't get more fun. <laughs> More removed from the cesspit of someone surviving <laughs> under the tube to yeah, Lenore, yeah. making your clothes smell fresh. Yeah, well, you know, what can I say? Um, uh, even now, I mean, David Fincher talks about this because obviously he does a lot of adverts and he was like, you know, the reason to do adverts is to try stuff out that you might do in films. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. they're giving you lots of money to piss about. Yeah, So true. I think Gary Sherman was doing exactly the same thing. I mean, that he made his living in commercials. So he was trying stuff out that he liked doing, and then when he got a chance to make a feature film, he put it in the film. And, and, and it's great. And the reason he could, the reason he had a good chance of achieving it, 
is the people on his on his it all worked on his adverts. It all yeah. worked on adverts, so they yeah. were happy to take scale yeah. and work with him on a film because they like working. And they were technically good enough to do yeah. this shot. He mm. could sort of say, "We're going to do this long tracking shot," and the producers were all like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> uh, but the technicians were good enough to do it. Now, going back to my original point about the about the criminal part of it is that. For that American release, oh, they cut it out. They no, they cut it into pieces. I think and like interspersed it throughout the film. So yeah, you just got little chunks of it, which is yeah, well, you know, typical Americans. But it was was that the distributor or a producer in America? It was did... Sam Arkoff, yeah, the head of AIP. That's right. AIP yeah. bought it for distribution in the states, and he was like, "What's all this comedy and what's this stupid tracking shot?" He said it was, but he thought it was boring. Yeah. Like, uh, to, this, this, yeah. to let you inviting you into the horrible world was was boring in yeah. a horror. Yeah, kids don't care about this. <laughs> and it is, it's, it's, it's and it's nice to know that what survives then late, later on is is a, is a full version of it. Yes. Um, now. There's a couple of nearly stories in terms of names that we're more than familiar with, and we've already mentioned, obviously, Pleasance and Christopher Lee being in it. But, but Jonathan Demme was was very nearly producing it at one point. He was producing ads with. Um... Yeah, he worked with Gary Sherman at that point, mm. and he was he was lined up to produce the film, and then he got uh, a directing job with so Roger, Roger Corman. Roger Corman, yeah, got yeah. the call for the Corman. So, uh, and Gary Sherman was like, "You have my blessing, go away mm. and direct." Uh, so he, yeah, he he ended up doing his own stuff. But yeah, they had a quite, quite a tight working relationship. You know? Yeah, and I, st- I still think um, Gary has very fond memories of him. It was obviously because he died earlier this year, and yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I think uh, Gary was obviously quite emotional about that when I spoke to him. So both have the same ill feelings of uh, Mike, their experiences of Michael Mann, <laughs> which was a bit of a, a, bit of a surprise to a surprise leap in the in the, yeah, tone, see, of the tone of the interview. Well, you know. <laughs> I I wasn't aware of that. Uh, I think I, I knew that he'd worked with Demi. I had I wasn't aware that he'd worked with Michael Mann. Mm. So he suddenly came up with that while I was interviewing him, and and I was like, oh really? And then he you know then he kind of told me in no uncertain terms what he thought of Michael Mann, and none of it was off the record. So I was like, fine, I'll put it in the interview. You know, yeah, that's yeah, going yeah. in the book. No, no, it's golden. It's golden. <laughs> but the other the other big nearly story is Marlon Brando for uh, for playing. For playing the man underground, he, he, I mean, it's funny that this this kind of like it's 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 interesting seeing this little backstory to each actor. So you've got you've got Christopher Lee's in it because he wants to play with Pleasance and doesn't want to be a vampire. Yeah. So therefore, I'll do it for ten p. You've got you've got Pleasance who's dying to do a comedic role, and somebody writes one for him and says here's one, and it's like it's not about the money, and then Brando. Likes to wear makeup, so you can't tell it's Brando. So therefore, we've got a role for you, Brando. Yeah, and it, I think because basically the, one of the producers had had and he been was in France. Was, it, was he, he nearby? Was he it? was. Uh, he was at some point, but basically one of his producers had previously been Brando's agent. Ah, okay. So had a great relationship with him, and yeah, Brando basically loved the idea of like dressing up and not, mm. you know, doing a role where no one knew it was him. That's right, yeah. So that was why they sort of ran with this idea for a little while. And they were do the sneaky marketing really? campaign where they go, yeah. is it or isn't yeah. it? Yeah, ooh, yes. <laughs> um, but then for various reasons it never happened, which, you know, I think very possibly is a good thing. But, I mean, he could have been brilliant, but at the same time, the film may, you know, may never have got finished if Brando had been in it. Who knows? Now, uh, let's remind everybody, so Deathline, your your book about the film, but Deathline is out now. Yes. Who's publishing it again? PS Publishing. Okay. Uh, so you can order it directly from their website, or I believe you can order it on Amazon. And uh, there's a limited edition of 500 of the hardback. Yes, there are. So get it while it's hot. Excellent, excellent. Now, you're also involved in another book, but, but this time as the filmmaker helping 
to promote it. There's a, yes. There's a compendium of stories called Yuletide Terror. It's not stories, it's it's essays. Oh, oh sorry, essays. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's all about sort of uh, Christmas horror. Okay. So the film and TV, James. all that kind of... Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's a multi-author compendium of essays. Basically. Okay. So they're like, and you mentioned before we started that Kim Newman's part of that. Uh, Kim's written for it. I mean, the the editor, uh, the main editor is a friend of mine called Kayla Janice, who wrote a book called House of Psychotic Women, mm-hmm. which um, came out a few years ago to great acclaim. You know, she's sort of a very renowned programmer and film critic. Uh, so she's doing a series of film books. So she's one of the editors of this book, and I'm, you know, I'm sure she's oh, yeah. written stuff for it as well. But there's yeah, there's a whole bunch of people writing for it. You know, it'd be a great book. And when's that seeing the light of day? That will be out in time for Christmas. You can pre-order that now from the publisher's website, which is spectacular optical. And that's called Yuletide Terror. Now your role. Terror. So my role for that is slightly different. So uh, slightly long story, but basically a few years ago, uh, Kayla was visiting me in London, and she's kind of seen everything, but. You know, she said to me, "I'll oh, show me something I haven't seen." And mm. I was like, "Well, that's the impossible task." But it suddenly struck me. I was like, "Oh, have you seen the M.R. James Christmas Ghost Stories?" And she was like, "No." So I showed her a bunch of those, and she fell in love with them. And she fell mm. in love with the whole idea, the tradition of like telling ghost stories at Christmas, which yeah. is a very English tradition that she wasn't really aware of. So, fast forward to now. She was like, I'm going to do this book on Christmas horror. I want you to make a Christmas ghost story to tie in with the launch of the book. So I was like, fantastic, because Great I love news. that tradition as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she was basically kind of like, here's a little bit of money. Go away and make something, um, which I've done, uh, or I'm like currently finishing off. Um, she, you know, no one knows what it is. She was sort of like, it's not enough money that I'm going to exert any control over you. So basically, show me the film when it's done. Wow. So I've made this film completely with free reign, you know, just as the only limitation being budget. Uh, so I'm the only one to blame if it's terrible. Um, hopefully it isn't. But yes, so I'm finishing that off now. And then basically, it's called... Um, we always find ourselves in the sea, mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of a sort of a bit of a homage to the kind of M.R. James tradition. It's not James unit, it's not period or anything like that, but it has certain echoes of some of those things, yeah. stuff like whistle and I'll come to you and all that kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's so it's. Um, should be ready by the end of this month. It's going to be seen at various launch events for the book. I believe there's one in London on the 14th of December at the Miskatonic event at the Horse Hospital near okay. Russell Square. It's not an exam, so what I'll do is I'll find out if that's true, and if it's not, I'll just put the right link I, in the It better notes. be true, because I'm meant to be introducing <laughs> the film there. So, <laughs> um, But to the best of my knowledge, the film will then go online, I think, on Christmas Eve, so that it's online in time for Christmas, so anyone can watch it. Nice um, one. And then that will be so our... you get to be the Christmas be, Ghost Story. Yes, so that will be my humble contribution to the Christmas given, Ghost given, Story tradition. Given that the English TV... Well, given that the BBC can't be asked to make them anymore, then, you know, I'm quite happy to make them in that case, you know. Nice one. Well, good luck with that. Thank you very much. Good luck with the release of Deathline. Thank you. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Nice buns. Soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread. 
with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com.